Lee, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. You're welcome. Now, let's begin with your introduction into the legal profession. You were assigned to try cases in the military, is that right? I was. I was a pilot first. I um, totally, by chance, was assigned to the legal department uh, because they had run out of lawyers. There are great parallels to be drawn between being the pilot of a single-engine military fighter and being lead counsel in the courtroom. Um, there is a strong measure of self-reliance, which is common to both, and the need to make decisions rapidly and correctly, which is common to both. So I am encouraged for years, even though it's not the reason I linked the two originally, anyone who wanted to work for me, I said, why don't you go out and get a pilot's license? It'll do wonders for your self-confidence and make you a better lawyer. Now, before we jump in some of the cases you've defended, we're out here in New York. Uh, I know in the 90s you represented a gentleman out here named Frank Sacco. Uh, you've tried cases all over the country. What's your take on our justice system here as opposed to other states? Well, New York uh, City is quite different than upstate New York. Uh, I tried a number of cases in upstate New York. Always enjoyed them. Had the good fortune to have good judges on the bench. One of the worst clients I ever had in my life was Frank Sacco, and I think it's one of four first-degree murder convictions out of a hundred chances. Let me turn to a case that was a huge disappointment and ended badly, not on my watch, but ultimately. I was defending a rogue cop who had turned on his brethren named William Phillips when the Knapp Commission was investigating the New York police department, they caught him with his hand in the cookie jar and turned him. And unfortunately, he decided before his role as a witness was over to write a book about his experience. Uh, he got indicted by Frank Hogan's office. The prosecutor assigned to the case, one of the best I've ever met, and thereafter, a great federal judge named John Keenan. The judge who presided in the case was, frankly, a nightmare named John Murtaugh. And uh, the case was about a murder, which was totally hooked up. I'm satisfied to this day, starting with his polygraph test by a former New York State Police polygraph examiner, that Bill Phillips wasn't there, had nothing to do with it, but was framed uh, in order to neutralize his effect as a witness in the many cases that were pending. In any event, I hung the jury 11 to 1 for acquittal, and I think absent some tough rulings by Judge Murtaugh, he would have been acquitted. Uh, next time around, my former partner, Henry Rothblatt, defended him. A different prosecutor came in, and although I wasn't present, um, I, I think things did not go smoothly. In any event, the jury found him guilty. He did years and years in Attica, um, and I think um, died recently. I'm not sure. So you graduated law school, I believe, in 1960, and you're hired to represent a gentleman named George Edgerly of Massachusetts. How would you handle delivering a closing argument in a murder case right out of law school? Well, it wasn't exactly right out of law school because I had spent most of law school 
sitting in the courtroom watching trials, having been forewarned that law school would do little to prepare me for the role of trial lawyer. In addition to that, I had tried a fair number of cases in the military before going to law school and frankly had gotten pretty good at it just because of an intense interest that developed and the fact that I do very few things halfway. This one I had plunged into. However, the Edgerly case was my very first jury trial uh, other than military juries. And I must tell you, I think when I got up to give the final argument, even though I had come into the case late and tried only uh, the last witness and the prosecution's case and then put on all the defense witnesses and was chosen by the defendant to give the final argument, the minute I started talking to the jury, I knew that this was my home. This is where I ought to be. I went, I think, with no notes for two hours, mostly relying on transcripts I had not read involving testimony I had not seen or heard. But uh, thank goodness it worked out. Otherwise, I think I would have been seriously criticized for involving myself in a capital case when I had only been a member of the bar for less than three months. And it did pay off. And at the Edgerly trial, you were hired to represent Sam Shepard of Ohio, what is likely your most well-known case. Were you reluctant to get involved, seeing as how he was really at the bottom of the barrel in terms of legal remedies when you found him? Well, he was certainly at the bottom of the barrel, and that's the way I like to describe his case. He had lost not only a jury verdict, but a total of 11 appeals. And I took him on for the sole purpose of ensuring that if he were allowed to take a polygraph test by the prison authorities, that it would be fair, the examiner would be neutral, and it would be properly run. Because I had learned an awful lot about the polygraph in the military and come to respect and rely upon it. When the state of Ohio said, no, we don't want to know how he will do on a polygraph test, I uh, didn't lose my temper but I got pretty angry and said, okay, you guys had your chance to go the fair route. And I went in um, federal court and dismantled his trial machinery and some of the appeals to the point where the federal judge ordered him released and said that his trial was a mockery of justice. That was a pretty good turnaround from the bottom of the barrel, particularly since the prosecutor, I think unwisely, but perhaps politically necessarily elected to retry him, and the jury gave him what I would call a thumping acquittal. And you were still fairly young when you did the Shepard case. How much of trial work or legal work in general do you think is natural? How much of it could be learned over time? I think that certain talents and skills are tremendously beneficial. Um, if you want to be a trial lawyer, having a good memory and a good command of the language are two essentials. But most of the top trial lawyers in history have come not from the top of the class, as I happen to, but from somewhere in the top half. They were street people. Uh, they could look a man in the eye and get some ideas to whether or not his story was true or fabricated. And those 
of the fellows that I got to know as a very young man who were already at the top of their game. And I learned something from all of them. And indeed, uh, this October, I am going to be the architect of a program at Duquesne Law School in Pittsburgh that will attempt to teach young lawyers to be good trial lawyers. And by that, I mean young lawyers who have some courtroom experience. This is not a program for recent law graduates. So Shepard v. Maxwell comes down in 1966. I think in that same year and the following year, you represented Dr. Carl Capolino in two states, New Jersey and Florida. We mentioned earlier you represented clients across the country. How tough is it to go from state to state, every state with its own local rules, procedural statutes, even for a skilled trial lawyer such as yourself? I almost inevitably had local counsel, unless I was in federal court, where it's a lot less necessary. But I always got local practitioners to brief me on the trial judge, his proclivities or hers later on, and... uh, habits and preferences and things like that, because the trial judge has a tremendous amount of authority and can issue many orders and rulings that won't be seriously scrutinized and appealed. So the old maxim when in Rome do as the Romans do holds water. I must tell you, there was more variance from judge to judge than there was from state to state. If you had a good judge, He was going to be a good judge no matter what state he was sitting in or what state he had come from, because frequently I had judges that were transferred into a county or federal district, especially to hear that case. Did you often find that because of your name recognition status as a trial lawyer that trial judges' adversaries treated you differently, or were you well-received in all the counties and all the states that you've been to? Uh, Local members of the bar used to chide me on the ground that I got treated better than they did. Now, bear in mind, um, when you are a visiting lawyer, as I was at least 80% of the time, in other words, operating in a court where I was not a full-time member of the bar, but admitted just for that case, one had to walk softly, and if one carried a big stick, not brandish it. I had wonderful treatment by judges across the country in the main. There were some apples in the barrel that were rotten to begin with and a nightmare to deal with, but they were few and far between. On the opposite end of the scale, I used to have the judges tell me, Lee, I don't want you to plead guilty. My whole family's coming to this case to watch it. So those are both ends of the poles. There were some judges that were not happy to see me coming, and I could sense it almost from the first encounter. So around that time, you represented also the Boston Strangler, Albert DeSalvo. Is there any doubt in your mind that he was, in fact, the Boston Strangler? No, and I think all of the notions that he was not have been pretty well put to rest. The reason that that doubt uh, was so difficult to put down is because no jury ever heard directly the charges aired against him as to the strangling. So there was no legal judgment that he was the strangler. But everyone who was knowledgeable in the case was more than satisfied, including his legal guardian, who had been the commissioner of corrections in Massachusetts 
and New York, and then uh, the clerk of the district court, and the prosecutors, Ed Brooke, uh, later a senator, and myself, and all of the lead police detectives. This was the guy that just checked out in so many ways that we had to rule out any fabrication and coincidence. And although people do confess to crimes they didn't commit, wasn't the case here. But the objective in the DeSalvo case, ironically, failed totally, and it goes on to this day. It was my idea that he should be incarcerated for life because one could not start when he, uh, one not predict when he might start killing people again. And he couldn't predict it either. He started and stopped without outside constraint or influence. But I thought if we studied him hard enough, we might be able to see his successors coming down the pike before they started knocking people off. Uh, nobody did anything about that, despite some strong urging by the trial judge in the assault cases where he did stand trial. And uh, uh, then he died in prison, got stabbed to death for uh, offending the prisoner's code by selling speed uh, at more than competitive prices to the other inmates. Uh, Albert DeSalvo was a shifty but clever street fellow. Now, the product of that is, and is very current today, nobody had any idea, at least not a sufficient idea to do anything about it, that this kid, Anthony Cruz, was going to grab an AR-15 and just start killing people. Although there were clues there, indeed some that the FBI had, and they should have been recognized. The reason they're not is because we never, never study killers of this type, even after in their they are in captivity, and we have total control of what they do day by day. You spoke to Bill Buckley about this exact topic. You mentioned how it's not effective to label criminal defendants, schizophrenic, so on and so forth. Have you seen any progress in the past 50 years? I don't think any progress that one would call notable. And if there had been progress, we would not have seen the spate of shootings. In 2018 alone, as of a couple of days ago, we had 46 cases of weapons being discharged on a school campus. I'm sorry, we had had 18 instances, uh, and the year it was only 46 days old as of the Parkland shooting. So I would say abject failure is the only label one can affix to any alleged effort to better understand the point of predictability what is twisted inside the heads of these people who get some gratification from killing others. Their gratification is simply from killing. That's right. But in your own career, one of the biggest victories, early 1970s, Captain Ernest Medina in the My Lai Master Court Martial, you've indicated that justice is often better served in a military court than in a civilian court. Why do you think that? Well, I, I will carry that a step further. If I were charged with a crime, and I were innocent. I would far prefer to be tried by a military uh, court, court martial, 
than by any civilian court I have ever encountered. And that is not pointing any kind of derisive finger at civilian juries. But military juries have several things going for them that leads them, I think, to much higher degree of accuracy in their results. First of all, the military has to be very picky about not convicting innocent people. When that happens, the people in the lower ranks, the day-to-day machinery that moves the military, usually know whether the guy was guilty or not. And if he's wrongfully convicted, morale takes a big dump. When morale takes a big dump, reenlistment takes a big dump. And when there is no draft, reenlistment is the military's lifeblood. So the system is structured to weed out innocent people, whereas on the civilian side, the system is structured to throw anyone in the defendant's box that will get the elected district attorney some favorable publicity, and whether he's guilty or not is not a matter of primary interest. Second, the military makes sure that you have adequate counsel. We say we do in civilian courts, but when you hand 50 cases a month to a public defender who's paid less than his opponent on the prosecution, you get people going to trial who are not prepared and uh, unholy plea deals that are made up because both sides are virgin. Third, military juries are disciplined. They are trained to obey orders even if they disagree with them. When they're told you must find something to be true beyond a reasonable doubt, they apply that rule. I think very few civilian juries are really able to do that. Military juries are better educated. Most are officers. Most have a college education or better, and most are pretty streetwise. That's what happens when you put on a uniform and start talking about getting shot at or shooting at other people. And as a saving grace, if a mistake is made, the officer who convened the court to begin with, usually a senior colonel or general, has the power to overturn the verdict. And while civil judges have similar powers, they don't have the political will to do it much of the time. Because when a very unpopular guy, good example, turns out, O.J. Simpson, uh, gets convicted, even if the judge was satisfied that he were innocent, few would have dared turn him loose. As it was, he probably suffered more for being acquitted than most people do when they're convicted. I think I shared with the military uh, a feeling that the disgrace, which was the massacre at Milai 4, I mean, uniformed U.S. Army personnel, including an officer, machine gunning women, elderly people, children, and even infants in a trench. And just letting the bodies pile up is a worse atrocity than we have heard attributed to the Nazis and Germans in War II the Koreans in the Korean War and the Vietnamese in this particular war. It was awful. To show that the responsibility for allowing this to happen did not go up the line was important. Lieutenant Kelly, 
who was convicted, and properly so, was obviously very much involved hands-on. The cutoff man was my client, Captain Medina, who was as good an American as the Army ever had from a little town in northern New Mexico. He loved the Army and was so depressed when he got accused of conduct that would horrify any decent human being um, that it was tough to deal for a while. But he was a strong man. The evidence was overwhelming that he never knew anything about the shooting of civilians until it was over. And it was discovered that, and this whole incident was, by the way, a product of faulty intelligence. The invading uh, platoon was told there'll be no one in the village but combatants. The women and children leave every morning at 7 o'clock. You're going in at 7.30. Shoot everything in sight, including the livestock, and then they won't come back. So um, although the average fellow can tell that a three-year-old boy is not an enemy combatant, Lieutenant Kelly had a bug up his butt for a number of reasons, and he opened fire and his men went with him. Uh, there were four of them that did most of the killing. Kelly was the only one that was tried and convicted. And several years after that in California, you represented Patty Hearst. Now, in some of the post-conviction efforts that she undertook after the trial, she indicated that your representation was ineffective. Now, considering you negotiated away the death penalty in a related case, were you hurt by that, or did you view these things as simply consequences of the business? Well, no one ever accused us of ineffective assistance of counsel in the Hearst case, including Patty Hearst. She kept me on as counsel and told there were no more appeals. And the thing that hurt was people did not understand that I was hired for one specific reason. After the brainwashing defense had been put in place before my arrival by two court-appointed psychiatrists who knew damn well what they were talking about, Randy Hurst met me at one o'clock in the morning in his home after I'd flown out in my plane from Louisiana, where he'd found me in a women's prison talking to another murder suspect. And he said, there's only one thing I want from you if you can do it. So they have her cold, I'm afraid, on a first degree murder. They don't have the evidence yet. If they get her for that one, she'll never get out of prison. So we're going to lose some of the cases. I'm sure there's a flood of them out there, I'm afraid. But you've got to extricate her from the murder if you can. We did that. But we couldn't tell anybody what we had done or how we had done it until she wrote a book. And that's the part that hurt. People were saying, well, you lost the Hearst case. And I wanted to say, oh, no, we didn't. We won the phase we were hired for most urgently. And I might point out, this was a bank robbery where a pregnant woman was shot in the belly with a sawed-off 12-gauge shotgun by Emily Harris. Patty was in the getaway car by her own admission, and her own book admits it. And that is first-degree murder for all involved. But worse, in this case, when the victim's body showed up at the emergency room of a nearby hospital and the physician on duty 
lifted the sheet to verify that she was dead on arrival, he found himself looking into the face of his wife and dead fetus. That was a tough case. Jeffrey Tubin recently wrote a book about the Patty Hearst case. Jeffrey Tubin um, was a 17-year-old youngster when this trial went on. He knows nothing about it. He wasn't present. He read some stuff, which is his method much of the time. Jeffrey Tubin holds himself out to be an accomplished trial lawyer. He was anything but. As a matter of fact, he almost got in big trouble with the Bar Association and was, in fact, subjected to a trial in federal court by the very judge I admired earlier, John Keenan, for stealing documents from Lawrence Walsh's office when he was an assistant to Walsh in the investigation of Oliver North. And uh, they went after him for it. Judge Keenan said he never signed a document saying that he wouldn't keep any of the documents he was given, and therefore I'm not going to find uh, against him. Um, But um, for Jeffrey to say he's relying on his trial experience when he writes and gives opinion about how I tried the Simpson case or the Hearst case or any other case he writes about, he is on slender credentials. He simply was not a trial lawyer of any distinction even though he kind of left-handedly holds himself out to be. I sat with Tubin for four or five hours in my office trying to help him with this book. And because it didn't fit in with his plan for the book or what he thought would sell, he ignored most of it. I would never give him two cents worth of my time again. But Patty Hearst took the stand for one reason by agreement of all the lawyers and her parents. If the judge ruled that the murder at the Carmichael Bank in Sacramento, which I described to you a few minutes ago, could not be inquired about in the course of the trial of the robbery of the Hibernia Bank, for which we were on trial, she would not have taken the stand unless he ruled definitively prior to trial that that was off limits. Judge Oliver Carter was a good man. I had tried a very important case before him. He treated me well, but he was very ill at the time of trial, had uh, a life-threatening surgery a couple of days before the trial on his carotid arteries and repeatedly fell asleep on the bench during the trial. After I put her on the stand, He reversed his ruling and said, okay, the Carmichael Bank is fair game. I've reconsidered. And so she had to sit there and take the fifth or admit under oath that she was guilty of first-degree murder, which wasn't about to happen. I had already gotten her use immunity, which meant that anything she told the FBI about that murder couldn't be used against her. It did not include voluntary testimony in court. So the fifth was a given. Uh, I got 11 affidavits from people who described the reliance we placed on Judge Carter. I took that issue up in a burning fashion to the Ninth Circuit, and they kind of swallowed it like a lump and pretended that Carter had done the right thing to correct himself. It was an atrocious ruling 
uh, I will probably hate it worse than any other ruling made in any case I've ever had for the rest of my life. But at the end of the day, the long history of events involving Patty after she was kidnapped was going to bubble up into some prison time at some point, particularly the machine gunning in Los Angeles. That was a nightmare case because she was convicted in San Francisco. It was agreed that a, a plea would be taken on that with no additional um, time in prison. So at the end of the day, all things considered, Patty did three years. It could have been much worse. Jeffrey Tubin's book does nothing to help uh, the public understand that trial. If one were interested, one could read the clippings from the New York Times during the almost three months of the trial by one of the best print reporters in our history named Wallace Turner, and they would get a very accurate blow-by-blow of the uh, Hearst trial as it unfolded. And I must say, although it's not published anywhere, that feeling exasperated after the closing argument was given, and I thought we were down the chute because of the Fifth Amendment development, Wallace Turner came up to me and said, that was the best closing argument I've ever heard, and I've heard a bunch of them. So that was worth almost all the gripes I have with the Hearst case, including Jeffrey Tubin. Now, another case that's not often brought up in interviews that you do, and I don't know why, is your representation in the 1980s of the Prime Minister of the Bahamas in connection with some corruption allegations in Nassau. How different was that experience than what you're used to here in the States? Um, it was different in certain respects, but I think because of my military background, where we had things similar to the commission of inquiry that was conducted in the Bahamas, um, there was nothing terribly different about it. It was a three-member commission, a British appellate judge who had been in the Caribbean a lot, the retired number two man in the Royal Canadian Mounted Police from Canada, who was a super guy, and the Bishop of Barbados, who happened to be a native of the island in the Bahamas, where I had a home at the time, who turned out to be, I thought, less than honest, and dissented from the majority in the result. And the result, of course, was that the prime minister had no finger anywhere near the drug traffic, which was indeed rampant in the Bahamas, mostly due to his geography. Uh, I think the reason that the public paid little attention to it is because there is generally, except for those who go there to enjoy it, a derisive tone for much of the uh, culture in the Caribbean. They are portrayed as uh, slothful, um, anything to avoid work, lots of junk new music and bright colors and so forth, where indeed it is a much better place to live in America in many respects. And the Bahamas at that time was run by my client, the longest sitting head of state in the world historically. And he was an outstanding man. If he'd served in the United States, he would have done well.
1994, I think you joined the O.J. Simpson defense team. In an interview with Charlie Rose, uh, I've heard Jerry Spence indicate he declined an invite to join the team, uh, as he said, because if you get various different painters, even very skilled ones, to paint on one canvas, you don't get a very good painting. You agree with that? No, and that's not true. I mean, uh, I know Jerry Spence. Jerry Spence wanted to come in on the case and indeed solicited that, and he was told through somebody, I don't think he talked to Simpson directly, but he may have. Um, Well, thank you very much, but we've got Anthony Bailey. I think we're all set. And the other problem was Jerry wanted to do most of the preparation from his place in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, where he keeps his school and not buckle down in Los Angeles. And this is a hands-on business. You don't do things over the telephone um, or even video transmissions in a hot murder case under any circumstances. So uh, Jerry never really got close to the case. There were a lot of people who indicated they would love to be in it. Um, None were invited except Johnny Cochran, whom O.J. wanted right from the outset and finally got. Why did that case, in your view, rub some of the luster off of the justice system in the public's perception? There are a number of reasons for it. First, the uh, print media core of crackerjack reporters like Wallace Turner had dwindled down to a single person who worked for AP. Her name was Linda Deutsch. Her series of articles about the case, she was in the courtroom every day. I've known her for many, many years. Read like a trial transcript. It's totally dependable. The other print media people were not particularly distinguished. I don't think they worked very hard. The television medium, unfortunately, has largely replaced the print media as the exposure most people get to what's going on in a criminal case, and it necessarily, the way the media is structured, involves little snippets of information. Uh, Lots of lawyers who shouldn't be trying traffic cases commenting and giving advice to the public on the way the case is going and being paid exactly what they're worth. And in this case, we had some real neophyte reporters as well as some veterans like Dominic Dunn, who came to the case bearing a heavy cross from his own daughter's murder and very much against O.J. from day one, and Jeffrey Tubin, who um, just kind of felt around until he sensed that the public was suspicious of Simpson's guilt, and then he poured it on, and I don't recall very many of his articles that I would call neutral. So the public's access to the Simpson case was badly thwarted, modeled, and distorted by the inadequacy of the reporting unless you did one of two things. You watched the case live day to day, as some did, and got yourself almost bored to death much of the time, or you read Linda Deutsch's articles or after the trial, you read Johnny Cochran's book or Larry Schiller's. The rest of them were, by and large, garbage. 
And how gratifying is it for you uh, with the OJ movies that came out in the past several years, the Patty Hearst documentary now out on CNN, to see your body of work stay so relevant, survive that test of time? Well, um, I didn't much care for either. I thought the acting was good in the people against OJ Simpson. I was very disturbed that the facts had been distorted in such a way that Simpson was made to look guilty by things that never actually happened. Uh, the Hearst thing, after looking at the book, I frankly didn't watch. I'm busy doing a bunch of things on my own, getting ready to go to England to study their educational methods for trial lawyers, and there wasn't anything that I wanted to see. The only gratifying part is that people sometimes say, F. Lee Daly, is he still around? Is he still alive? And they inquire after these portrayals pop out on television. And uh, I must say that requests for speeches and sales of law books have increased as it is discovered that uh, this old bird ain't dead yet. And you think that if you were licensed today still, you'd be trying cases at the same rate that you were? No, I would not for this reason. You know, there's a phenomenon in life called been there, done that. And I would have to say to myself to put up with all of the aggravation of being a trial, which is the uncertainty as to what tomorrow may hold. Judges change dates, cases settle when you didn't expect them to. Plea bargains are offered after you've worked your butt off getting ready for a full-blown knockdown trial. Uh, it just, I mean, you can't buy plane tickets and, and have uh, confidence that you're going to be able to use them because some judge may order you to be someplace else that same day. I've been there. I've done it. I've tried more cases in more jurisdictions in this country and elsewhere than any lawyer in history, I think. And right now, the contribution that I can make is not sitting around waiting for my case to come to trial for a few moments of hot action uh, surrounded by hours of boredom, but it is to try to encapsulate the things that I've learned, both good and bad, and pass them on to what I see as a fading profession. The really good trial lawyers of America are not being replaced as rapidly as they age out. And I've seen you say, I think, that if you had to do it all over again, you may rethink criminal defense. Why is that? Um, well, first of all, economically, there are very few lawyers that made enough of a living on pure criminal defense to afford doing that and nothing else. Most of them have a file cabinet with lots of civil cases in their personal injury, and others that pays the rent and enables one to buy the summer place or the yacht or the private plane. That was certainly true in my case. And the more headlines the case gets, the less likely that there'll be any serious money behind it, and they tend to stretch on forever. So whatever you charge is going to come out to a few dollars an hour by the end of the day. That's the downside. On the other side, there is in America a strong right to have a jury trial, supposedly by a jury of one's peers, and it is a protection against the autocracies 
the oligarchies and the military dictatorships that trouble the rest of the world on a chronic basis. And therefore, I think the institution is well worth keeping and contributing to, as I have tried to do, and long may it live. I am a little troubled by the fact that the general reward for doing your best in a criminal case is either you lost or you got a guilty bastard off. The legal profession should be more like the medical profession, meaning they'd never let an unqualified doctor remove your gallbladder, but a kid out of law school can theoretically walk out and try a murder case. And I am that kid. I was 27 years old. But I also did not come to law school uh, naive or wet behind the ears, so it's an exceptional situation. It's not likely to be replicated. I strongly believe in and I'm dedicating a lot of my time right now to creating a school to train trial lawyers the way that the medical profession takes people coming out of residency and puts them right back in another one for a specialty. It can be psychiatry, it can be neurosurgery, it can be orthopedic surgery, it can be any number of different specialties, but it is a higher training we don't have that anywhere in the United States in a meaningful way. And before I cash in my chips, I'd like to see one up and running that turns out some quality, what I call not cutting lawyers. And Lee, it's been so great of you to join us. Thanks so much. Where could people go to find out more about you, what you're up to these days, how to get in touch with you? Uh, I have a website called baileyandelliot.com two L's and two T's and Elliot, all lowercase, no punctuation. And uh, among other things, there is on that website a 17,000-word document which will convince most fair-minded people that no matter what they might have thought about the Simpson case, if they thought he did it, they're full of you-know-what. And I think the facts locked into that document are enough to show. I am in the process of writing a book now to accomplish that purpose even more definitively. Well, Lee, once again, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Okay.